The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan, and today we're going to talk about group therapy. But not just any group therapy, we're going to talk about the kind of group therapy that Dr. Aaron Black practices, group therapy that is based on attachment theory. Dr. Black's groups are revolutionary and life-changing. Dr. Aaron Black is a clinical psychologist in full-time private practice in Rochester, New York, where he works with individuals, couples, and groups. Additionally, he leads training groups and workshops nationally, as well as writing about attachment theory, psychological trauma, and group psychotherapy. His most recent article appears in issue 69 of the International Journal of Group Psychotherapy and is entitled, Treating Insecure Attachment, Attachment Theory Meets Modern Psychoanalytic Technique. He is a fellow and a board member of American Group Psychotherapy Association, as well as an instructor on the faculty at the Center for Group Studies in New York City. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. How did you become interested in group therapy and in running groups? That's a wonderful question. Um, I have to go back to graduate school, really where uh, I was an intern, uh, uh, you know, part of the um, clinical training that I received in getting my PhD. And all of the trainees met with the director of training who happened to be a group expert. And so we spent an all-day experience at her house. Uh, I had never been in a group before. I, had, I really had no idea what, was a, what it was all about. And I was, I was really blown away at how powerful it was and, and frightening and wonderful. And um, being vulnerable with a group of people like that was not something I had ever been, uh, you know, used to or, or had the experience of doing. And I was just really uh, blown away by the power of it. Tell us a little bit about the groups that you run in your private practice. Well, I have two different kinds of groups that I run. I run um, regular weekly therapy groups. These are people um, mostly who have been in individual treatment with me and then sort of graduate to adding group either in addition to or instead of individual work. But generally, um, I work with people individually to start. So I've got um, therapy groups, um, and those uh, have the, the typical Um, goals that we have in any kind of therapy, which is about personal development and symptom symptom reduction and uh, the capacity to grow emotionally and relationally. Mm -hmm. So that's one set of groups. The other set of groups I run are called training groups. And those are for mental health professionals who want to know more about uh, learning how to run groups themselves 
or about some of the theoretic orientations in which I work, like modern psychoanalysis or attachment theory or something like that. And those are basically therapy groups, but on top of it, there's a professional development piece. So what we're trying to do in a training group is help people develop emotionally, but also since our emotional lives are really our tools as therapists, we're trying to learn how to marry our emotional lives with theory and technique to be better clinicians. So those are the I, those are the two kinds of groups that I run. So the groups for patients. Tell me a little bit about those groups. Maybe something about um, the rules of the group, the group contract, um, the commitment that you ask uh, of the uh, people that join these groups. Sure. Um, so. Uh, this is maybe the, the trickiest part of, of helping someone start in a group because uh, group therapy is really different than individual and you have to help people understand what the differences are. So um, in a new group or for a new member who joins a group, I ask for a four-month commitment. So people are upfront before they've even been there are agreeing to give the experience four months. We never, I'm, at least I never ask that of individual patients. You know, people come in, they decide if they feel a connection and, and a belief in your competence, and uh, that sort of grows naturally. But in a group, it's so anxiety-producing in the beginning that um, people are kind of a flight risk because they get uncomfortable, and then they say, well, I don't want to do that. Um, and so I try to help people stick around long enough so they can let their anxiety go down and get grounded in the experience, see what it's like before they make a decision about the fit. So there's, an, a, there's a commitment, a time commitment people have to be willing to make before they even walk in the room. That's very smart because I have patients and I'll introduce the idea of joining one of my groups. And the first thing they say is, can I just try it out? Can I just right, right. go can and- Can I come once or twice? <laughs> Can I just observe? Right. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that for the people who are already <laughs> working in the group and being vulnerable to have someone come and dabble. So for the safety of the group and really for the, for the health of the person coming in, you know, you, like anything else, it's uncomfortable at first. All new things are uncomfortable. You need to be willing to sit with your discomfort long enough to see what it, to really see what it's like. So that's a, a really important part of it. And then, we've got group goals and a group agreement. So the group goals in my groups are, I ask people to tell the emotionally significant story of their lives, which is like, you know, kind of like about their identity and what they've struggled with, what their joys have been, you know, what are the emotional themes that make them who they are? And that takes, a, that takes some time, right? That's quite a story to try to tell in a group with six, eight, 10 people. Yes, and that's um, done over time, like yeah, maybe over maybe, time. maybe over years. Yeah, yeah. It takes a long time for people in a group to help each other know who they really are. And our history is such an important part of that. So that's one goal. The other goal, which sounds simple, but it's actually maybe the hardest goal, is to just put your thoughts and feelings about yourself and others into words as you become aware of them in the moment. So as we're feeling something in a group, uh, the second goal is to speak to it, whatever that is, whether it's a feeling we're having inside ourselves or, or a, a reaction we're having to someone else, to try to speak to it like real time. Um, and of course, as you know, because you, I know you run groups, sometimes you know people will take weeks 
and go, you know, to figure out what it was they were feeling and have to come back and describe something that happened a month ago, which is fine. That's all part of the work. But, but those are the, those are the two goals. Um, and then there are some basic parts of the agreement, um, which is really just the, the sort of parameters we're all agreeing to in order to work together. Things like confidentiality, what, what's talked about in group stays in group or coming on time, leaving on time, paying on time, you know, using words, not action to communicate. Uh, those, those, those kinds of things, you know, they all generally make sense to people when you go over them. The one thing that's different about a group is that people pay, it's like a subscription. Mm -hmm. So people pay for the group, whether they're present or not, which is different than individual. Of course, people can cancel in advance and not pay for a session. So that takes some explaining. People balk at that sometimes. And it sounds easy when you say, okay, Patricia, put your thoughts and feelings into words. How are you feeling inside yourself and why? And how you're feeling toward, uh, you know, Paul sitting across the room and why? And so many of my patients will say, well, I'm feeling that he's being argumentative okay. and unfair. And it's like, well, that's a thought. That's not a feeling. Well, I'm feeling like he just attacked me. It, no, you're feeling right. attacked. You're feeling scared. You're feeling, it's not easy. This is, this is very, very, very uh, difficult for a lot of people who grew up in a home where they didn't have a feelings vocabulary, right? Yeah, which I think is probably most of our homes. I think so, right? You know, it's hard to tell the difference between a feeling, a state of mind, a description of another person, a thought versus a feeling, yes. and then to have length to be able to identify them accurately, right? Because mm -hmm. They start in the body, and that body stimulation is sometimes hard to decode. Like, how do we know if our heart's pounding, if we're anxious, fearful, excited, or angry? Because a pounding heart goes with all of those states. Right, absolutely. No, this, this is uh, wonderful for people in recovery who I think we call addiction the disease of disconnection, so that they're disconnected from themselves and other people. And this really slows down the action, right? Uh, right. And, and when you're a good group leader, and I know you're an amazing group leader, you slow the action down um, so slowly so that people can freeze the frame and really reconnect with what they're feeling inside themselves and towards someone else so that they can, instead of just, you know, blowing up and looking like a jerk, they can say, I'm angry because this reminds me of, you know, my father who was over, overly critical of me. And um, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, thing to learn. Now, what are some of the reasons that people will give you when they call you the first time to request a spot in your group? What are they looking for? Well, it, you know, it's fairly unusual that I get a phone call from someone just looking for a group. Mm. Sometimes uh, with my training groups, I'll, I'll get that because from a, uh, there, there are professional avenues where people will see my my workshops or participate in uh, in demonstration groups or you know, something like that. So those folks I might get a direct phone call from. Um, most of my patients um, come from my practice. So it's usually an idea I introduce because people really don't know that much about group. Um, it's not very well, widely known the same way individual therapy is such a part of our medical and treatment and, you know, general culture. Like everybody knows about individual therapy, but not, not so much group. Sometimes I'll get a phone call directly from people who know someone who's in one of my groups, 
they'll say, oh, my friend, you know, Sally's in your Tuesday night group, and she said so many positive things about it. And I'd like to work. Usually, they have some relationship goal. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to find a partner, or I'm not getting along with my spouse, or I'm having difficulty parenting my adolescent child, and I need to get more skilled. Usually, it's driven by wanting to be more capable and competent in their relationships. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I know, Erin, you operate from something called attachment theory, and you base your group work on that. I wonder if you could tell us what is attachment theory, and tell us something about the difference between being securely attached as an individual, what that would look like, and what it looks like if you are insecurely attached. Sure. Um, well, the, the basic idea in attachment theory, and it's funny to talk about this because like, it's the kind of thing everybody sort of intuitively knows something about because we've all been a kid or we've had kids and we see how they operate. But there's this whole academic domain that studies basically how children regulate fear. That's basically what attachment theory is, is at the cornerstone of attachment theory. And if you look at you know, a 14-month-old or an 18-month-old toddler, basically. Um, they're little tiny people living in a very frightening world sometimes with mm -hmm. uh, adults and animals, and um, they're completely dependent on a caregiver to give them everything. So that's a very vulnerable position to be in. So attachment theory looks at how the caregiver and the toddler manage their emotional and physical proximity to one another to help the toddler regulate fear. That's, that's the basic idea of, of attachment theory. And if you look at a child um, that's securely attached, they move very fluidly between the caregiver and the environment. So uh, you almost can't tell that they're, that they're getting anxious or upset or worried. Um, I mean, you can obviously if they fall down or get hurt or something dramatic happens, but but the most important part of attachment theory takes place in a very subtle way. So if you, you know, the, the mother or the dad or whomever brings in a child into a setting with a bunch of other people, even familiar people, um, that child is going to sort of stick close to the parent at first because yeah. that's how they're down-regulating their anxiety and their fear. Mm -hmm. And then once they feel safe and secure, they'll start making little trips out to explore and make contact with other people. But if anyone makes them even the slightest bit uncomfortable, they will seek proximity to their caregiver. And uh, the, the man who coined the phrase attachment theory was a, a British um, physician named John Bowlby. He used to call this um, emo um, uh, an emotional thermostat. So it was basically that the child is regulating proximity to the caregiver to regulate their emotions. If they're in distress, they move closer to the caregiver. And if they're comfortable, they generally want to go explore the environment and the people in it. So in a secure relationship, you got a kid who's doing that very fluidly and you have a parent who's like a lifeguard, mm -hmm. right? Parent may be talking to another adult or doing something, but that child and the parent know that they're in contact, that mm -hmm. the parent's watching and paying attention and that there's this little part of the parent's mind that's pretty much continuously attuned to the child. That's what secure attachment looks like. So when the child, um, when something happens, like let's say the child falls down and starts to get upset, the parent might actually go over and pick the child up and not wait for the child to seek proximity to the caregiver. Mm -hmm. 
So that kind of attunement, that mutual attunement is what characterizes secure attachment. In insecure attachment, there are several, several different kinds of insecure attachment, but basically what it is is something goes wrong with that emotional thermostat. Um, either the child um, gets distressed and seeks proximity to the caregiver and is not able to be soothed, either because the caregiver is not competent and capable and attuned, or the child might have something going on like asthma or autism or some kind of biological genetic problem that makes it difficult for the, for the parent to soothe them. Sure. Um, so that's one kind of insecure attachment where the distressed child seeks contact with the caregiver, but doesn't receive any kind of soothing or downregulation. Uh, but the other kind is when um, the child sort of gives up. And this happens in abusive and neglectful relationships. The child loses the belief that the parent is available. And so when they will, what they will do is they'll try to, try to suppress their distress and they'll avoid the caregiver when they're upset. And they'll try to manage it with some alternative way of doing that. Um, and kids have all kinds of strategies that they employ when a caregiver is not there to help them soothe themselves. And these get these are patterns that get laid down in a very powerful way in the brain. It forms basic neural pathways around emotional self-regulation and relationships. Uh, those are inextricably connected, and it becomes the basis for our adult attachment relationships, especially in romantic relationships. So if somebody is insecurely attached and they're in a romantic relationship, they may have this belief that is grounded in a childhood experience. Nobody, I'm not on anybody's radar. Um, I can't lean into you. Uh, if I'm in trouble, you're not going to be able to soothe me or help me. I'm on yeah. my, I'm on my own. Or I'm going to seek soothing through food, um, extramarital affairs, yeah. alcohol, drugs. Medicine, alcohol, cutting, all different kinds of things that adults do that are substitute attachment relationships, meaning that all sorts of alternative strategies that are non-relational and not interpersonal to regulate themselves. Exactly. It's less threatening, right? And you can always rely on you know, food to make you feel better or sex or TV or work, uh, or, um, you know, you could actually, yeah, alcohol, drugs, over, over exercising. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, as you well know, is that these alternative ways of regulating ourselves don't lead to growth. They actually keep us stuck. You know, we only grow in relationship to other people, mm -hmm. um, not in, in relationship to simply a short-term fix to help us feel better. That's why in the addictions field, which I've always strongly agreed with, people really, when they're in the grips of an addiction, they stop their personal growth. They become stalled. And when they go into recovery, they frequently have to pick up where they left off. Well, it's a tall order. We say in recovery, you are the same age emotionally when you enter recovery that you were when you started using. Yeah, I think that's really true. And how does addiction, classic addiction treatment, um, fall short? Well, I mean, in my experience, um, uh, the addictions model uh, is pretty good at getting people to stop initially. Mm -hmm. It's the maintenance of abstinence that's the problem. 
Um, you know, AA, NA, a lot of the outpatient and inpatient programs are really good at getting a person from using to not using, um, you know, depending on the structure and how much support uh, and intervention a person needs. Um, but that model is very well established. The problem is, and, and, you know, we both know from our work, that relapse is so common mm-hmm. is because those initial models of abstinence and getting grounded in abstinence in the beginning um, don't work well for uh, promoting people's growth and maintaining their abstinence in the long run. They have to shift to something that's more psychological, emotional, spiritual, um, because it's not no longer really a behavioral problem. It's, it's a, an emotional problem and the, the things that um, drive uh, people back into addiction are often gaps in their emotional uh, well-being, that uh, people lapse back into depression or a breakup with, with an important relationship um, will cause them to go back. Not because everybody who deals with a breakup goes, goes to an addiction, that we know that's not true, mm-hmm. but because the person with an addiction's history often doesn't have the emotional capacities they need to stay sober during times of crisis. This makes sense. And I, with you, I, I am a huge supporter of the 12-step community, but, and I understand why in the beginning of somebody's recovery, the 12-step community says uh, anger is a character defect and uh, we need to basically suppress it, uh, work through it, not experience it. Uh, the yeah. big book of Alcoholics Anonymous will say anger is the dubious luxury of the non-drinker. So, which right, which is also a, a, like a, a relatively accurate characterization of the way anger gets misused by people in the grips of an addiction. Yes. It is a poor description of anger in general. It really is. Now, how does how do you view anger? I have heard you say people need to be mad without. Uh, doing damage and people need to have other people be mad at them without being damaged or without losing relationships like I love that quote from you it's one of my favorite uh, Aaron Blackisms. so why <laughs> why is it important for people at some point in their recovery right when the re- risk of relapse is is not high they can emotionally regulate and they can start to feel their angry feelings inside themselves and toward others why is it important Aaron, for people to learn how to express angry feelings oh, gosh we could have a whole podcast on that one topic trish um i a, a whole bunch of different reasons but it, it in a way we have to start with the basic premise that we are mammals Mm-hmm. And mammals of all different kinds who have similar brain structures um, are aggressive under the right circumstances. We have aggressive instincts. It's built into our evolutionary history, our DNA, and our genetics. And there's no way to get around it. And anger, um, which is, uh, you know, when I say aggression, I'm not talking about anger. Aggression is like an instinctual energy that uh, makes us want to act on our environment. We want to have influence, control power, that's aggression. Anger is a specific affect that often has to do with uh, frustration, not getting our way, some kind of injury, fear. Um, so the, so anger is like a derivative of aggressive feelings. 
And it's uh, it's biologically wired into us. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, people who suppress their anger often become really anxious because mm-hmm. as we're driving down the road, if we tell ourselves, I'm a bad person if I get angry yeah. and someone cuts us off and our instinct is activated and we have to defend against that instinct because that we're gonna, we think we're a bad person, we're going to end up really anxious in in a moment like that. And people who are anxious a lot of the time are often people who are frightened of their anger and other people's anger. So the real question is not, do we have to deal with anger? Because even if we suppress anger, we're, st- we're still dealing with it. We're doing something with it, right? Right. It's really a question of how do we work with anger constructively? And how do we know the difference between destructive anger and constructive anger, right? If I sit here and I say, Trish, I'm really angry at you because blah, 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 right? Right. I, there's nothing naturally harmful about that communication to you. I'm telling you something about my internal state right. and something about why I have that feeling. Yeah. If I call you names, if I uh, click off the call angrily, if I use sarcasm, or, or if I pretend I'm not angry when I am and you start to get uncomfortable because something's happening and the, you don't the, know what. The cold shoulder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those, those are all ways that we um, communicate anger destructively. And of course, a lot of people communicate anger in action, right? right. Like hitting someone. Right. Or, or, or having an affair. Or having an affair or, you know, right. uh, getting violent or harming ourselves. There's a whole... A whole literature about the um, direction when people direct their anger at themselves, at their own mind, at their body, people who are deliberately self-destructive. So one thing that a group can is really good at is helping people learn the difference between destructive anger and constructive anger, and uh, be able to put use the language to uh, describe that feeling state in a way that actually helps them feel engaged with people in so many of my patients and groups will say i'll say well why didn't you tell chris that you're mad at him because he doesn't show up regularly and that it makes you feel unimportant well i didn't want to hurt his feelings well if you don't say it but you act it out it's going to impact the relationship and he's going to notice something exactly and i like what you said i like what you said aaron because people that are trying to suppress their anger there's two um, uh, results. One is it takes a hell of a lot of um, energy to push down anchors. So these are people who will come to me and say, oh, I'm tired all the time. I think I have chronic fatigue syndrome or I'm not sleeping or I have TMJ. I have chronic headaches. Uh, Or the other thing is if I suppress my angry feelings toward you, then I feel fake. I don't necessarily feel a hundred. I, I don't feel legitimate. I feel like an imposter because I'm hiding that side of myself, and I think it's going to drive a wedge between the two of us if I'm holding back angry feelings toward you. Yeah, yeah and everyone kind of knows it's false. There's something basically false about it. But we're also trained to be nice, and mm-hmm. if we're not nice all the time in our relationships, there's something wrong. I don't, of course, agree with that, but I understand why that that people get taught that. And part of the problem is, is without anger and aggression in a healthy way in a relationship, there's no passion. It's uh, true. It creates a kind of passionless emotional state for a person and a relationship. 
That's a great point. I had a patient in a group uh, this year, and she voiced something to me in, in the group and said, Dr. Halligan, I'm really mad at you. I have felt dropped by you. I feel like you like other people in the group more than me. This makes me feel like I'm in my family of origin. I grew up with seven kids. I was nobody's favorite. I fell through the crack. I'm really mad that you're not giving me enough attention. And yeah. I said, I'm so happy that you told me that because I care deeply about you. And I didn't n do this in, do, you know, intentionally, but thank you for letting me know because I wouldn't want to do anything that, that hurts you. And she came back the next week and said, that's powerful to me. I'm a little scared that now you will hate me because I criticized you. And I said, you didn't criticize me. You told me you were angry and why? Yeah. And right, that w it was a bit of yeah. an aha experience for her. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that when we get angry, so many of us, you know, myself included, you know, can be critical and judgmental. It's 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 natural that we're that way, but we confuse being critical and judgmental with an effective communication of anger. It sounds like she was really able to tell you something about her, her life, and the reasons why she was angry. And it was wonderful that you could let her know that that was actually a really effective thing to say to you, not critical. It's, it's uh, so important, I think, to learn how to express our anger uh, toward each other. Because if I care about somebody and I'm hurting them, I'm going to want to know it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And it, will al it allowed me to learn more about her because she brought her history yeah. into it, right? So well, you're, you're pointing us to one of the critical things about groups, which is that groups are incredible at re-stimulating unfinished business from people's family of origin. And they, but um, that part is almost like a rule of group. Everyone in a group is going to re-experience some of the most difficult things of their family of origin, consciously and unconsciously. The beautiful part about a group is that the ending of the story can be different. It doesn't have to have the same ending. So tell me a little bit more about that. And do you mean that by being in a modern analytic or an attachment-based group therapy, we can actually emerge as securely attached individuals? We can actually remap our attachment style. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's, called, that's referred to as earned secure attachment. The attachment system is very malleable and it can change over our lifespan for better and for worse. And when, when your patient came into the group and had that experience of being ignored, she was able to protest the, that something was happening that wasn't good for her yes. and have you respond. You can imagine she probably had a parent who was dismissive or punishing, which is why she was worried that now that she had protested that she was going to be punished by, by you. Yes. And instead, you gave her the experience of, no, no, you're, you're being assertive. And we're going to have more together in our relationship if you can do that. If you can talk to me when you start to get those kinds of feelings, something new can happen instead of just the same old thing. So this is what you would call a corrective emotional experience. Yes. Deeply Absolutely. healing, right? Yes. I have a uh, woman in one of my groups who was attacked by somebody in the group, and I came to her defense. 
by basically saying no attacking in this group and you look like you're very angry at this person and tell us why tell us what you're feeling inside yourself and why what you're feeling toward her and why um but i i basically interceded and that person the next week showed up and said that was life-changing for her because nobody's ever stood up for her in her entire yeah. life right she was not protected in the family of origin yeah, that's, a, that's another wonderful example. And then there's so much to explore and know about what that was like to be protected instead of being thrown under the bus. Yes, this is a learning lab. You've often said that, right, Aaron? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm gonna actually um, take one of your papers that I really loved, <clears throat> and it was on attacking and being attacked in group therapy, published in International Journal of Group Psychotherapy. And in this paper, you write that group can serve as an inoculation against criticism, rejection, neglect, disappointment, and help boost a person's resiliency. And I wonder if you can comment on that a little bit. Sure. Um so what I had in mind when I wrote that was, <clears throat> and, and there's, a, there's a bunch of pay, really wonderful papers on this topic. Um, people have like a, an emotional membrane around them. We all do. <clears throat> like right now, you know, if I took a phone call in the middle of our interview, you might be a little offended. <laughs> like, like what is he, why is he, he, right, exactly, right? But you wouldn't collapse. We wouldn't need to call an ambulance and have you taken to well, the hospital, not, right? Not, not after about 25 years of individual and group therapy and a whole <clears throat> bunch of 12-step meetings, right? Exactly, because, because you have the emotional wherewithal. If I take a phone call in an offensive way, or I, if I say something offensive during our interview, yeah. you're going to have certain kind of stimulation that happens inside. And you have the capacity to work with the fear or the anger or whatever, so that you can keep engaging, right. so you can keep talking, so we can work through it. You might even say something like, Aaron, you know, it's very distracting and uh, kind of upsetting, actually, for you to take a phone call during right during in the middle of the interview. And, I'm, and I would go, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry, you know. So what, what, you're, what we're demonstrating there in a micro way is what emotional resilience looks like. It's the capacity to deal with the emotional stimulation that comes our way. And there's, if we're going to be in relationship with other people, we're going to get pleasant, joyous, you know, positive feelings. And we're going to get a lot of difficult feelings too because people in relationships are very complicated and we get yes. injured and disappointed and people frustrate us, and they're not how we want them to be. So in a group, we get a chance to look at as, what, as to whether people are over-insulated or under-insulated. So what I mean by this is um, emotion, uh, thinking about that membrane that sort of like surrounds us uh, psychologically, right? People who are very, very reactive, like people who we're, we're in a group and um, someone's talking and looks away from them, experiences that as a devastating slight, yes, right? an abandonment. Um, that, right. That's someone who's under-insulated. Oh. Um, that's someone who is too open and porous with what's happening relationally. And they get so overstimulated, reactive, and disturbed inside at small disappointments, provocations, um, they need more insulation. They need more capacity to deal with the turbulence in relationships. 
But at the other end of the extreme are people who are over-insulated, right? People mm-hmm. who are maybe highly intellectualized or keep people at a distance, right? You could tell a person like that to go to hell, you never want to see them again, and their heart rate wouldn't even go up. They'd right. be like, well, I, I didn't care about you anyways, what they're saying in their mind. This, this sounds I like I've got a guy in my group, and I said this to him last week. I said, boy, the women in our group are really going at you, uh, and you're you're standing for something. You're, you're They're projecting all their man hate onto you. And he said, you know, I basically don't care what anybody yeah. in the group thinks of me. Right? right. So that's the over-insulated guy. That's the over-insulated. So that's where no emotional nutrients, no emotional toxins, not, nothing emotional gets through. They're just like an island. And, you know, we want in, in our development, healthy people, healthy relationships involved, being able to take in nutrients and keep out toxins without having to get enmeshed or become overly distant. And uh, groups are wonderful ways for people to be able to do that. So, for example, that woman or person, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. who felt slighted when the person talking looked away. Yes. Someone in the group might pick that up. Someone like an ally of theirs. Like, you know, you know, Joe, I noticed you looked a little upset there just for a moment when so-and-so turned away from you. What was happening there? And with a little bit of cajoling, might get him to say something. And then that person might validate, you know, I get that. My mother never looked at me. And it always bothered me. And that validation would strengthen the response that he, that, that person is getting. So they wouldn't just go into an old pattern of self-attacking and, oh, no one ever, no one stays engaged with me or why am I so sensitive that's one. That's an example of how in a group, when people are working with each other, we can build resilience for an under-insulated person. An over-insulated person, someone might look at them and say, you know, I really care about you, but I don't feel that close to you. Mm-hmm. And it makes me really sad. And, and, I wonder, and I wonder what's going on with you, Charlie. Yeah, exactly. Right. Why, right. why is it I never hear about anything that's happening inside of you? You describe other people, but you never share anything about yourself. And that's a person and, who's over-insulated. So this might be an aha experience for that man. Yeah. Right. And and I for mean, the... He probably, he probably either grew up in a family that, that he needed to wall himself off from, or one that didn't want to know what he was thinking and feeling. You know what else I like about your groups uh, and and the style of running a group, Aaron, is in a recovery group or a 12-step community, self-pity, and I'm using that with quotation marks around it, uh, self-pity is discouraged. And meaning feeling sad for things that you didn't have, feeling sad about your losses. Uh, And I think in the 12-step community in early recovery, I think it's it's discouraged because they're afraid again of emotional severe emotional dysregulation to the point where yeah. it's going to be triggering a relapse. But after you get to uh, you know stable uh, sustained recovery, you're going to want to be in a group of people who are going to encourage you to talk about your sadness and your grief and your loss. And there's something incredibly healing about being heard and have your suffering witnessed in a group, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think you're also highlighting a critical difference between self-pity and grief. In self-pity, which is problematic in recovery, 
um, there's there's built into that not just sadness, but why did this happen to me? Right. I'm a I'm a victim. Yes. That you know that this thing I lost happened to me. When of course everybody suffers losses, yes. right? So there's a self isolating that happens and self pity and that sort of self victimizing that happens. That's so not helpful because you're losing your agency and acting like the world is just happening to you and you can't do anything. Where grief bonds everybody because everybody, you can't live a life without grief. That's universal. So that if you are at the human condition, I love that you're bringing that point up. So if you and I are in a group together and I lost my mother and you lost your mother, we can I'm not the only one in the whole world yes. that, and we can connect on that loss and I'm not terminally unique, underline the word terminal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're, you're, there's something about taking our pain and having it right-sized mm-hmm. so that it's neither too big as though we're the only one who suffered or we're so walled off from it that we're callous to ourselves and other people. You know, there's something about having our emotional lives right-sized and, and, and universalized that is unbelievably healing. So powerful. And I really love the fact when you're in a group, you get feedback because sometimes in 12-step groups, you, there's no crosstalk. So you yeah. can go into a group, you can uh, basically get vulnerable and share something. But if there's no crosstalk, sometimes it you wonder how it went over. How am I perceived? But in a group you might see somebody uh, crying as you're sharing something vulnerable. And then you ask them about their tears and they say, that moved me so deeply and I felt so sad for you. And I mean, it it can really, really give you a very good idea of how people perceive you. It's so important because if we're going to be vulnerable and we're going to share the kinds of our experiences internally and in our lives we don't normally talk about, like at the grocery store, even at a dinner party, you want to know that it matters to people. Or what's the point of talking at all? Yes, and I want to know that I matter to people, right? And I don't, and I'm not crazy, and I make sense. Exactly. Right? So how does a group help address the shame that so many people feel and carry when they enter recovery? Uh, these are wonderful, um, thoughtful questions. I really appreciate that you're asking this one in particular. Um, mm-hmm. So before um, I say anything about how we, <clears throat> how a group can help, it's important to remember that shame is a universal feeling. Shame is not the domain of addiction. It's a universal feeling. All of us um, in our, it, in, in fact, shame is critical to the development of the central nervous system. Without shame, um, being in the moderate range when we're um, kids, you know, and toddlers especially, um, the central nervous system doesn't develop the way it's supposed to. It either shuts us down more than it should, or we don't get shut down enough um, and uh, can be, uh, you know, dysregulated uh, in, uh, in an overwhelming way. So shame is normal. Shame is what happens when we uh, feel either that we have a bad self, that we're all bad in that particular moment, or if we're um, significantly exposed, there's a kind of vulnerability or shame is built into vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily have to feel we're bad, but if people see our inner lives 
in a way that we're not used to, sometimes that, that vulnerability can create shame just from emotional exposure. I like that you normalize it. Yeah, because it's normal. I mean, there's a reason that people get called shameless and it's, and it's a dig, right? These are generally people who are grandiose and who don't use, can't use shame to know they're doing something to someone else they shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. I often think if people would be a fly on the wall in my office and if they could hear how many other people day after day after day, and I see the worried well, these are normal high functioning people and I know you see the same, who feel inadequate and who feel less less than and who feel like an imposter, like they're uh, experiencing an imposter syndrome where, oh, if you only knew me. And this is so much more common than people might think. Oh, yeah. It's like almost universal, I would say. So if and I'm in a no, group, right, and I hear everybody in the group having these feelings of I'm not good enough, then I feel better on some yeah. level. Well, it's like, oh, everyone else is kind of like me. I'm not so individual and weird. I can be understood and people have similar experiences and it connects all of us. And the most important part of normalizing shame in, in a group is um, practice. When you practice talking about things you feel shameful about, shame, it's been said before, people like Brene Brown, mm -hmm. you know, talk about shame thriving in the darkness. Yes. You know, you, yes. Shine, you shine the light on shame, meaning that we put, we put our shame and the things around it into language. And we do that over and over again. The shame we get, we get, it just shrinks. It just, you know, we do, other people, like we might feel horrible about something and other people are like, huh? Like, that happened to me too. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, oh I'm not so horrible. I'm not such a monster. Um, and just the practice of being vulnerable, right? And tolerating the shame because it's a natural part of being vulnerable is to feel some rise in shame, maybe a little, maybe a lot. But when you practice, you just get used to it. I blush as a group leader. And my blushing is always involving shame, embarrassment, or some kind of exposure. And there's no hiding the blush. My whole group can see it. And I bet they find that endearing. And yeah, it's mean, an invitation. Yeah. It, it, at least it's saying, hey, look, I've got skin in the game. I'm vulnerable too. Like, I'm a person. Even though I'm running the group, my emotional life is involved here. Yes. And, and you are totally uh, front and center. And everybody's looking at you when you're the group leader and you're disappointing everybody in a group yeah. all, all the and time. And that's the thing, when we make mistakes as a therapist, but especially as a group leader, and we can rise to the occasion to um, accept our imperfections, to know something about the impact of those imperfections on group members, and to be open to them telling us about them. What an incredible model for when our group members go home and fail their kids and realize it and then can do the same thing. And also the healing power if we as a group leader can say, I'm really sorry that I hurt you. You are right. I'm so sorry I let you down. I'm sorry I disappointed you. I'm sorry I hurt you. How maybe that's the first time in their whole life they've ever heard those words. So it's wonderful modeling. Now, Aaron, you've said before in a group therapy that it's important for people to integrate different parts of themselves or at least notice different parts of themselves. And I wonder if you could comment on that. It's probably going to happen a lot easier in a group 
to demonstrate different parts of myself. If I'm in a group with eight other people, right? Then if I'm yeah. on the couch, just, you know, perfectly choosing my words and, you know, one-on-one with my therapist. Well, I mean, you're raising a wonderful point here. I always say to people I supervise, I always tell them, you, you don't know your individual patients until you see them in a group. And the reason for that is, is that the stimulation that happens in a group and, and the patient's unconscious mind and automatic behaviors get stimulated and those patterns emerge in a group in a way where our patients can show us what they struggle with in, in a way that they could never tell us. I've, I've had people who really high-functioning people who I thought, wow, you know, this person is so developed. <laughs> and in many ways they were. And then they're in a group and all of a sudden the, slight, the slightest bit of negative feedback and they're so defensive or so counterattacking. And I'm like, what is going on here? Yes. And the, the value is they're immersed in a matrix of emotional relating that bring out the very things we need to help them with the most. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And people discover the parts of themselves that, well, they expose parts of themselves that they kind of deny. Like if I'm judgmental, but I say to myself, no, I'm not judgmental. I do so much good on a daily basis. And I go to church and I pray and I meditate, yeah, right? I'm a good person. I'm a good, good person, but put me in a group and I have un controllable feelings of I'm judging people and I'm hating people and I'm uh, jealous of some people, right? Like you really get in touch with parts of yourself that you tend to deny. Why is that important for me to know those parts of me exist, right? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question, but I'll just (laughs) tell you what I think is the most important. Whatever we deny in ourselves, the people closest to us are going to come to know. Oh, I love that answer. Oh, yeah, you bet. Or, yeah, totally. It'll come out somehow with the people in our inner circle. It's going to come out unconsciously in the way we relate to the people we're closest to in um, uncomfortable and painful ways that create distance. And we don't want that. So go to the learning lab, join a group, and just practice, practice, practice. The the cool thing is I have one man in my group who is super judgmental. Uh, and I think being in a group for five years, what he's learning is he, the people that he's formerly judged, now he's listened to their stories. He understands why they are the way they are, and he has much more compassion for himself as well as for other people, and he gets curious now. If somebody's behavior is odd or he doesn't like them, he wonders what it is that makes them behave that way. Yeah, and 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 so... That's such a wonderful example, Trish. And if you think about that particular man, right, that might be better for the people around him to have him be less judgmental and more empathic and curious. But think about his internal experience. Yes. person who's habitually critical and judgmental of others is living in such a small, hostile, constricted place inside themselves. When we have compassion and empathy for others, we are expanding something inside of ourselves that's benefiting us. It might secondarily help other people to show more empathy and compassion, but I want to live in a place inside myself that, that, um, that uh, expands that part of myself because it feels so much better to me. That's an aha moment. That, that, is, that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful point, Aaron. 
And, you know, it's interesting, I'm thinking about this man again, and over years, what the people in the group and myself have really learned about him is, his dad was that critical of him. This he's right. being tortured. He tortures. He's tortured internally by his father's voice, and then he applies, you know, all of these criticism and, and judgments uh, to himself and to the world around him. So yes, this will benefit his partner and his children, his grandchildren, and he'll feel like a better human being, a more loving one. Yeah, he'll feel more like himself rather than just himself in relationship to his father and repeating that relationship over and over again, unconsciously. That's powerful. So one one other thing that I absolutely love um, about uh, uh, the groups uh, and, and these beautiful attachment groups with the uh, modern analytic bent, uh, I absolutely love that it brings out longings in the group members that they didn't even know they had. Yes. Right? Like, I know there's one person in my group I'm thinking, and he's he's a professional male, very high functioning. And after three years in the group, he said out loud, I just want to follow the women home and throw my arms around their legs. Like, and I'm going back to the scene that you uh, painted at the beginning of the podcast with the little child holding on to mom's legs you know, because there's a scary world out there. This, and he yes. realizes my mom was never nurturing, but I listened to the women in this group and I just, I want to follow them home. I didn't have enough soft, gentle, compassionate, warm words from a female figure in my life. And and now he has a longing for it, but he didn't even know he had that longing, right? Exactly. And it, groups can help people have emotional experiences that they never even knew they needed. Like the ability to ask for help. And yeah. right, I have a female physician in one of my groups and she for years kept saying, why do we want to go back and rehash everything that happened in our tragic little childhoods? It's not going to change anything. But recently she's having trouble with her mother and that's what she tends to talk about. Um, and she actually came into the group and said, I need the group's help. And we just about all fell over because she's, you know, that's that's the kind of uh, a person as a child who learned early on nobody's there for me and nobody's going to be able to help me so it's it's been wonderful Aaron having you on the podcast if there's someone out there in the listening audience who really really wants to join one of these groups one of these brave spaces so that they can become more feel more whole feel more authentic learn ways to be more intimate with themselves and with other people, learn relationship skills, effective emotional communication. How do they find a trained therapist in their area? Um, probably the best thing to do is to go for them to go to the American Group Psychotherapy Association website. There is a free link um, or um, section of the, web, of the website that would help. Um, they can put in their zip code and they can find um, certified group therapists in their area. So that's the AGPA, American Group Psychotherapy Association. AGPA.org. Wonderful. Thank you. And do you have any openings in your uh, training groups for therapists across the country? Um, One or two here and there, but not many. But I, I do have a waiting list, and I'm happy to, if I don't have a group that works for someone, put them on a wait list. Well, I can't uh, thank you enough, Aaron, for coming on the show. It's great to see you, and you've given us just a feast of wonderful information. And uh, 
what a challenge uh, to people listening. If they want to grow, I think this is the place to do it. It was a pleasure being with you, Trish. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so very much. This is Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and uh, Dr. Aaron Black has been our guest today. Uh, well, thank you very much. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.